All right, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Galatians chapter 3. Our ushers are bringing some Bibles around. If you don't have one today, forgot yours at home, or you need to borrow one of ours for any reason, just raise your hand, and we would love to let you use a Bible that we've got prepared for you, because we're going to be studying the Word of God today. Our services um, are committed to being centered on the Word of God, because it is the things that He has revealed to us that determine how He needs to be worshipped, how He deserves to be worshipped, and so we want to make sure that our worship resonates with the Word that He's revealed to us, and uh, that it matches the things that were taught in Scripture. Uh, we're not interested in just uh, giving you a bunch of the opinions of people. We want to introduce you to the living God and help Him to be center and, and, and foremost in our services. So I um, just want to remind you, if you are a covenant member of the church, don't forget to come tonight at 6.30. We'd really love to have you here. Um, if you are not a member of the church, but you're interested in that, and maybe becoming a member one day, then please uh, talk to myself or one of the other elders that are here today. We would love to give you the um, information you need on how to pursue that. Um, covenant membership is a way to really be involved. We, uh, we, we know that following Christ means being a disciple of Jesus. It means walking in the pattern of His life. It means living the way that He lived, saying the kinds of things that He would say, and expressing the, the same type of obedience and, and faithfulness to the Lord God um, who uh, sent Him. So uh, we really are appreciative of those who have called this their church home and have committed themselves to being here regularly and who are involved with the service that goes on here and in some ways are using their spiritual gifts to bless the, the body of believers and those who come to visit us so they might see a picture of who Christ uh, really is. So if you can come tonight at 6.30, we'll uh, talk about some things that are going on in our congregation, some of the ministries we have going on. The Lord has really accomplished so much in the church this year. We've had a lot of people coming forward to be baptized, coming forward to become members. We've uh, began training our deacons. We're going to have deacons for the first time ever uh, this next year. So the Lord's really working, and we're blessed by that. So we want to share some of the things that He's doing. So last week we spoke. Uh, we spoke about a curse. We were in Galatians chapter 3, and we talked about how uh, the Galatians were being taught things that Paul the Apostle had not originally taught them. There was a group of individuals who had come into the region of Galatia, and the different churches that were scattered around Galatia were being led astray. They were being taught that the grace of Jesus Christ was not enough for salvation. They were being taught that grace was great, that we need the work of Jesus Christ, but they were also clinging to this idea that in order to truly belong to God, then we must prove our worth to Him by keeping the law of Moses. The Apostle Paul explained that the law wasn't a means of fixing our broken relationship with God because the only way the law can help us is if we keep it perfectly never breaking it, never falling short of its demands. And practically that is just not something that any human being apart from Christ has ever been able to do. To keep the law in its entirety is impossible. So the law hangs a dark shadow over anyone who thinks that their acceptance by God will be determined by their ability to impress God with their good deeds. To trust in the law as a means of salvation, as a means of redemption, is to live under a curse of certain failure. A few months back in June, you might remember on June 23rd, that a youth soccer team in Thailand had just finished up their morning practice, and several of the, the young kids on that team, age 7 to 11, had seen uh, some caves down by the ocean side, and they had heard of their friends going down there exploring the caves, and they all wanted to do it. They wanted to go down there and, and hike the caves. And the coach thought, well, this could be a really good team-building exercise. Let's go do it together. Many of them had packed a little lunch, and so they rode their bikes down to the, to the shoreline, and they went into those caves, not knowing 
that a great storm was on the horizon and that uh, a great shift in the tides was about to occur. They went pretty deep into these caves, which uh, go seven miles into the uh, cliffside there in Thailand. And before they knew it, the ocean had brought the tide in and they were sealed in those caves. They began to flee the incoming tide. It drove them further and further back into this network of caves. And before you know it, those children and their coach were seven miles deep into the, the, the shoreline. And there was no way for them to escape. Can you imagine the kind of desperation that this coach must have felt knowing that he was responsible for those 12 little boys? That there was nothing in his power that he could do to extract them from that cave. He wasn't a strong enough swimmer to be able to get himself out of that cave, let alone to rescue those 12 children, some of which didn't even know how to swim. Can you imagine the sense of responsibility, the sense of dread that must have filled this man's heart as each passing hour not only convinced him that he didn't have what it took to redeem those children, but also reminded him that the, every breath they took was using up what little available oxygen existed in that cave that they were stuck in. What, what a broken situation. What a terrible scenario to find himself in. And in some ways, that is how man, apart from Christ, exists on this earth. We are stuck in a terrible conundrum. Our sin has offended a holy and a pure God. And by sinning against this perfect and wonderful God, this God who has been so generous as to give us life and to afford us grace to let us live in the creation that He has made, because we have offended against Him, we have committed a serious crime. And the wage of sin, according to God's Word, is death. It's death and separation from God in eternity in hell. And so every human being that does not have Christ is under this great weight, this curse that they have no way of getting themselves out of. There's no way that man can redeem himself. He needs redemption from outside of himself, just as those children who were stuck in that cave needed someone from outside to break into their terrible situation and provide some resources that they did not have so that they might be able to be extricated from that cave. So too does the man who is lost in his sin need God to intervene in his broken life, to bring salvation and redemption to him. The God we have sinned against, according to the verses we studied last week, has provided a wonderful alternative to us trying to earn our way out of our sin. He has provided a cure for the curse of the law, and that cure is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became a curse for us, so that according to Galatians 3.14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so we learned last week that hundreds of years before Jesus even went to the cross and died in our place and rose again on the third day victorious over our sin, that Abraham was already being considered righteous and forgiven. Not because Abraham was a perfect law keeper. He was not but because he simply had faith that God's plan was going to be enough. So even before Abraham knew to say the name Jesus, he was trusting in God's plan. And God's plan was to bring Jesus to this earth, to walk in the flesh, to live free from sin, and to offer his perfect life as a substitutionary sacrifice for ours. The promise of redemption has been given to all who trust in God's plan for redemption. And unlike us, 
unlike us human beings, God always keeps his promises. Today we're going to examine that promise and we're going to meditate on how it relates to the covenant that God chose to make with his servant Abraham. And so we're in Galatians chapter 3 and we're going to read verses 15 through 18 today as we let the word of God speak richly into our lives, as we listen and consider the things that God wants us to know and to respond to. So in verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is in Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For in the inheritance, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. So as we examine the covenant that God struck up with Abraham, a covenant that has repercussions to all the nations of the world, we're going to examine three key terms that pop up here for the first time in the book of Galatians and in this argument that Paul is making against those false teachers. We're going to look at the word covenant. We're going to examine what that means, what makes a covenant different from any other kind of contract. We're going to look at the word promise. Now, promise was mentioned briefly last week in the last set of verses we studied, but it is more focused here in this passage we're studying today. So we're going to look at covenant and promise, and then finally we're going to look at the word inheritance. And we're going to discover what inheritance is in store for those who trust in Jesus Christ. These three terms are going to be fleshed out because they're fundamental to our understanding of how being accepted by grace is far superior than trying to earn the affections of God through our obedient works. So let's begin with this word covenant. A covenant is agreed upon set of terms that legally defines a relationship between two parties. A set of terms agreed upon by two parties that defines that relationship that exists between those two parties. Now the term in the original Greek language, diathekane, can be validly translated in two different ways. It can be translated as covenant, but can also be translated as a will and testament. Don't forget that. We're going to circle back around to that concept in a few minutes. A covenant is not just a contract, like any other contract that might be written up in a court of law. Contracts are typically formed between two peer groups, two equals. But in a covenant, there is usually one party that has much more to gain by the interaction, and there's another party that has much more to give in the covenant. That was certainly the case when God made a covenant with Abram. When Abram enters the historical storyline of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 11, he wasn't a particularly remarkable man. He's not described as, at first as some incredibly successful man. He's, he has some possessions. There are some people that are following along after him that he provides for, employees if you will. He has a, a good deal of resources. But in the time period that he lived in, Abram would not have been considered a blessed man because Abram lacked something that was critical to the people of that culture. He had no progeny. He had no son, no daughter to carry on his family line. So though many of the things in his life were going well, 
The thing that mattered the most was in deficit to him. His wife was barren, so he and his wife Sarai had never had children. And this was a tremendous trial for him. This Abraham probably wasn't even a very godly man at first. We learn from a few passing comments in the book of Joshua about the history of Israel that Abram's father, Terah, worshipped false gods. He wasn't even a worshiper of Yahweh. So that's the kind of household that Abraham grew up in. He grew up following a father. He lived with him for 75 years under this household that worshipped false gods instead of the one true God, Yahweh. But, despite those things, it pleased God in the 12th chapter of Genesis to enter into a covenant with this man, Abram. A promise that would make an impact not only on his life, but on the history of the world. And so in Genesis chapter 12, if you'd like to turn there, we're going to look at this initial covenant. We looked at chapter 15 in Genesis last week because we wanted to see one of the aspects of of Abraham's part of this covenant, that he was a man of faith. And his faith in God was counted to him as righteousness. Not his great works, not his perfect obedience, but rather the faith and trust that he put in God was what made God call him a righteous man. So here in Genesis chapter 12, he has not been called a faithful and righteous man yet. God has simply interrupted the life of Abraham and has proposed a covenant to him in a supernatural way. He says in verses 1 through 4, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the first indication we have of this covenant that would be so important to the nation of Israel and to the nations of the world through Israel. God uses four promises and one requirement to define this relationship with Abram and the proposal that he makes. First of all, he proposes to give Abram a land of his own. Up to this point, Abram has been kind of a nomadic herder. He's traveled from area to area with his flocks and with his herds so that his animals could eat and use up the grass and go to a different place. But God intended to give Abraham a lasting inheritance, a land that could belong to him and his family for generations to come. Now that wouldn't be a very great offering to Abraham if it weren't for the second promise. First promise is for land, but the second promise is that God would give him a great nation, would make him into a people that would multiply on the face of the earth, that this looming shadow of, of, of depression that was over Sarai and Abram, that they did not have a son, that they did not have a daughter, that God was going to solve that. That he was going to give them a child. And that through that child, they would have a bloodline that would carry on for the rest of eternity. God was going to give them a land. He was going to make them a great nation. And then the third promise that he gives is that they would be a blessing themselves to the other nations of the world. In all the families of the earth, says God, you will be a blessing. So Abraham's covenant is not a local covenant. It's not a covenant that just affects him. God is going to use this man and the testimony, the story of his life and his faithfulness to God to impact all of the world. And the fourth thing he promises is that he would treat people the way that they treated Abraham. 
that if nations were a blessing to Abraham, then God would be a blessing to them. If nations opposed Abraham and the Israelite people, if, if they were contrary and, and cruel to Israel, then God would condemn them. He would curse them. Those are the four promises that God gives to Abraham. And then he, he, he includes one, one requirement, but it's not a normal kind of requirement. God does not give him lists of things he must do. He does not say if you can accomplish these difficult tasks and prove your faithfulness or your worth, then I will make you the recipient of this great covenant. Instead, he requires only this, that Abram would accept the terms of the covenant by faith. That's all he had to do. He had to leave what he knew, turn away from this life in the world that he was so used to, and receive what God had to offer him. So this covenant agreement between Abram and God is incredibly important historically. Every nation of the world was to be blessed through this man's offspring as God fulfilled his promises to Abram. Not only would Abram receive Isaac, the son he always wanted, but Isaac would grow up to have sons of his own. And those sons would have sons. And soon the nation of Israel will have bloomed through the bloodlines of Abram, which before, before the covenant was made with him, that bloodline was considered dead. It wasn't going to continue on until God intervened. And one very special son would be born as a descendant of Abraham, the man Jesus Christ. And through the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross, others who believe like Abraham did can become the sons of Abraham too by faith. Now the Abrahamic covenant was not the only covenant that you find in Scripture. If you're to read from cover to cover, you're going to find that there are several points in God's Word where He uses a covenant to define the way that He interacts with people. In fact, one of the ways we can view Scripture as a whole unified story is by charting the covenants that God makes with His sons and daughters and to see how they fit into His overall plan of redemption. Now, all the while as we've read through Galatians, we are trying to keep in mind that Paul is advising those Galatians about these false teachers that are trying to get them off track. Don't forget that. There was a, a group of Jewish Christians who were spreading some false doctrine that said you need to have faith in Jesus, but you also need to do the works of the law. You must be circumcised if you're a male. You've got to keep the Sabbath. You've got to keep the dietary laws. They were muddying the picture of what grace really means. Those Jewish Christians who wanted to insist that salvation wasn't just grace, that it was grace plus the law of God, they looked to a later covenant. They put their eyes to the covenant we call the Mosaic Covenant, which came 430 years after Abraham's covenant was ratified. And they believed that in some ways that Mosaic Covenant was either an amendment or a replacement for that older Abrahamic covenant. If Israel kept the law, then they would receive great blessings from God. If they did not keep the laws that were delivered from Moses uh, on the Mount of Sinai to the Israelite people, then there would be tremendous consequences. That was a covenant as well, it, but it was a different kind of covenant. It was a covenant of blessing and curse. It was a conditional covenant. Those opponents to Paul claimed that he was ignoring that conditional covenant in saying that salvation came only by grace. So here's where Paul needs to clarify things for the people in Galatia. He's got to use some legal terms so they can understand exactly how a covenant functions. So in Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, 
No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So Paul wants to help us to understand the basic nature of covenants. A covenant is legal and binding. It's not just a a plan that we can modify as we go. Everybody knew that a covenant was a serious, serious agreement. Now the terms of the covenant were not fluid. They could not be annulled. They could not be amended once the covenant was ratified. So I want us to take some time to go back to Genesis chapter 15 this morning. And we're going to look at the ratification of the Abrahamic covenant. We've already seen how he proposed the covenant to Abraham. And in the weeks and months to come, Abraham responded faithfully to that proposition. He left what he knew. He left his father's home. He took what he owned. He he traveled to the place that God called him to go, even though he didn't know what that place was like, even though he was unsure how things would turn out. He didn't know how God would fulfill those promises, but he went. He was a man of faith. And so we get to Genesis chapter 15. When we get to Genesis chapter 15, he still doesn't have a child. God has not kept that part of the promise yet. He's still waiting and still believing, but he's struggling to see how God's going to make him a nation if he doesn't have a child. And so God wants to show him how serious he is about this covenant. In chapter 15, in verse 9, God appears to Abram in a vision. And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, and a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And Abraham brought all these. He cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. What is Abraham doing here? He's responding in faith to the commands of this God who has entered into a covenant with him. God has told him, bring these specific kinds of purified animals and you're going to bring them as an offering. You're going to sacrifice these animals and you're going to prepare a ceremony that I will make happen in due time. So Abraham goes through the process. This was something that was actually quite familiar to the Hebrew people. When you entered into a covenant, you were entering into such a serious contract that they would often signify the seriousness of the contract by blood. They would sacrifice an animal to God so that before God is their witness, the shedding of this blood would signify that this is a life or death promise that we're keeping here. They would cut the animal in half and put one half on one side and one half on the other. And then both parties who were agreeing to the terms of the covenant would then speak the words of the covenant as they walked through the pieces of that sacrificed animal. By doing that, they were both saying, may may what happened to this animal happen to me if I do not keep my promises of this covenant. Both parties were signifying how seriously they took that covenant by walking through the pieces of the animal and then they would celebrate that promise by feasting and cooking the animal up and and eating together. So that's the context and the culture of what is happening in the verses here in chapter 15. We skip forward just a little bit, chapter chapter 15, verses 17 through 18. God made him wait for a while. He prepares the scene. And then in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold... A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now, these things weren't in a wagon that just happened to roll through, okay? This is a supernatural event. We've seen something like this before when a shepherd named Moses, right? A shepherd named Moses goes into the wilderness. 400 years after this happens, he's going to see a bush, and that bush is on fire. And almost immediately, he recognizes that this is not normal. This is not natural. This is supernatural. 
And then soon after, he hears the voice of God speaking in that burning bush that is not consumed by the flames. Here, 430 years earlier, Abram is experiencing something similar in that he is, he is seeing this vision of a pot full of fire and a flaming torch passing themselves through the two pieces of meat that were laid out for this ritual. Verse uh, 10, I'm sorry, verse 18 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he goes on to describe some more of the boundaries of that land. So here we see this ratification ceremony. But what is missing historically from that ceremony? Abraham watches this torch. He watches this pot of fire pass between the pieces. But the scripture does not describe Abraham at any time walking through those pieces himself. Both parties were supposed to walk through the pieces to signify that they were taking upon themselves a curse if they did not follow after that promise. But only God walks through the presence of the animals that were sacrificed that day. That's significant, friends. Because what God is saying in that moment is, you, Abram, cannot keep your end of this bargain. You do not have the power as a sinful, flawed man to keep your promises to me. So I am taking all of the responsibility in this covenant. I am taking all of the risk. I promise to give you the things that I have declared to give you regardless of how you respond. I am going to be your God. You will be my people and I will make you into a great nation. God is making what we call an unconditional covenant to Abraham. It is not a covenant based on law. It doesn't say like the Mosaic covenant, do this and be blessed, do this and be cursed. It simply says, here is how I intend to bless you. What did sacrifice signify in the Old Testament? As we look back and we think about all those animals, those oxen, those heifers, those goats that were sacrificed as a gift to the Lord God, what were they doing? They were all pointing forward to the one important sacrifice that God would make when he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. And so here, even in the ratification of this covenant with Abram, we see a picture, a foreshadowing of what God would do, that his son would be sent as the one true sacrifice that would be sufficient for us, that would fulfill our need for redemption so that we can have a right relationship with the Lord. Paul is doing something that we call an argument from the lesser to the greater. As we look in these passages from Galatians chapter 3, he's identifying the fact that human beings make covenants too. And so he says, in human courts, once a will and a testament is ratified, everybody knows you can't change it. Everybody knows you can't go through and, and nullify it or bring in a different covenant and supersede it. That doesn't happen legally. So he's saying, listen, if human beings know how to keep a covenant properly, if flawed human beings with sinful hearts know how serious these promises are, don't you think that God, who is the very standard for what is just and true, don't you think that God will hold steady to the promises that he makes to Abram? There is no way that he's going to back out on his covenant to his, his servant. There is no way that he's just going to erase that covenant and put a new one in its place. The fact that the Mosaic Covenant was more recent doesn't mean that it voided out the covenant promises made to Abraham, which preceded it by so many years. And that fact is made even more clear as we turn our attention to the second term that we need to examine today. We've examined what covenants are, 
and how they function. We also need to look at that term promise. Because a covenant means nothing without promise. When a deal was ratified, when a covenant was ratified by, by God, that deal was very serious. That promise was made and could not be broken. God didn't just make a deal. He didn't just negotiate a deal with Abraham. He made a promise to him. And how are those two things different? What is unique about a promise? Well, an unconditional promise is unique in this way. You can't do anything to earn it. If someone is going to give you an unconditional promise, they're going to do it on their own terms. They're going to give it simply because they want to give it. You can't earn it like a wage. You can't gain it like a reward. You can't really earn an unconditional promise. It must be a voluntary act. But in making a promise, God makes it a guaranteed gift. God declares that he wants to bless Adam, or Abram rather, and God declares that he wants to seek and save the lost. He doesn't make those promises in response to man's performance. He makes them based solely on his desire to love man and to be generous to him. So these promises are not owed to us by any external obligation. God is only obligated to give them in so much as he declared that he would. By his own word, he establishes these covenants. Now, I recognize here that human beings have a hard time with promises because we have made promises to each other and others have made promises to us that are often broken, aren't they? You, I'm sure, have seen examples of people who entered into contracts and then those contracts were torn up. You've seen people who agreed to be covenant husband and wife for life till death do us part and then suddenly something other than death got in the way and the covenant was forgotten. Human beings have a tendency to break each other's hearts and to break promises to one another. So it doesn't surprise me that many have a hard time believing in this great offer that God has made to Abraham and has extended through Abraham to sinful people like us. It's hard for us to believe that God would just simply do all the work and if we just wait on Him, then He's going to make our redemption complete. The promise of Abraham, however, is not voided out by any sort of Mosaic law which came 430 years after the covenant. God, unlike man, keeps His promises. Whether a person keeps his promises is going to reflect on his character. It's going to tell us a lot about who that person is. And that is part of the reason why we view Israel and the covenants that God has made to Israel as so critically important. Through covenant, God has made promises to his chosen people. And those promises must be kept because he has made them. Otherwise, the name of God is slandered. Do you see that? If God makes a promise and breaks it, then his perfection is called into question. So the claims of these false teachers in Galatia that God had voided out the promise to Abraham or had changed it in some way were a direct attack on the character of God. Now I, saw, I know some people who follow after the Lord, they don't want to be caught up in doctrine. They don't really have the time to think about these covenants. They just want to say to themselves, God's going to keep his promises, so it doesn't really matter if I understand them. And I get that. But friends, if we have been given incredible promises, don't we need to know what those promises are? Don't we need to understand if God has said, I will do this, don't we need to understand how he's going to do it so that we can properly praise him when he keeps his promises? Don't we want to be aware of whether or not he's really keeping those promises to us? How can you do that if you're not aware of the covenants? 
And so we, we want to be careful, even though it seems at, at times like we're sifting finer and finer in this doctrine, we want to know what these covenants are about. We want to know how they affect us. We can't just eliminate the familial connection that God promised Abraham in this covenant. He said that he would give Abraham an offspring, right? So God has to somehow provide an offspring for Abraham. We've got to figure out how that occurs. If it's not just Israelites who are saved, then how does the church factor into that promise? We can't just substitute a different people as recipients of the promise. We can't say, well, Israel didn't believe, and so God has put them to the side and he's brought a new people. We can't replace Israel with some other body of people because this, these promises were made to Israel and will be fulfilled in Israel if God is a promise keeper, which he is. We cannot allegorize God's promises to make them fit into a theological system that doesn't firmly uh, find its foundations in Scripture. We've got to be careful about what we think about covenants and promises because they tell us and reflect on the character and nature of this God that we worship. Because our God has entered into covenant, we need to take the time to understand these promises so that our faith is strengthened when we see these promises fulfilled both in Scripture, when we read about them fulfilled, and in our own lives as we see redemption come to us through faith. And also in the future, as God has many promises that have yet to been fulfilled, as we see these things begin to manifest in the world around us, we need to know what they are so that we can rejoice together in God's keeping of His promises. Now there's one more element here in Galatians chapter 3 that we want to dwell on for a moment, and that's the concept of inheritance. You might remember back when we were defining the term covenant that we said it can be defined or translated, rather, in two different ways. The word for covenant can be translated covenant or it can be translated will and testament. You know what a will and testament is? When you're getting along in age, that becomes more important to you. And you might recall that uh, about a year ago, we had a gentleman come in from the Southern Baptist Convention. His name's Doug Griffin. And he helped many of our people set up what we call uh, a trust or a will and testament. A will and testament is basically a de declaration that when your life is finished, here's what's going to happen to all the resources that God has called me a steward of. Here's what's going to happen to the things that God has given to me. I want them to go to specific places. And when you write that will and testament, it's a done deal. Once you pass on, legally, it has to be fulfilled. People can't just come afterwards and say, I don't think you really meant that, and rewrite it. That's against the law. And so this covenant that God has made with Abraham carries many of the elements of an inheritance contract that those who would come after Abraham would become heirs to promises that would become theirs through faith. As faith connects them to the family of God, they can now enjoy some of those wonderful promises that God gave to Abraham and swore that Israel would enjoy and experience as his chosen people. Many of the specific elements of a will and trust are incorporated into this concept. And so in Galatians chapter 3, verses 16, it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. What is Paul doing linguistically here? He's being very specific about what the scripture means to communicate to us. Our English term for offspring is much like the Greek term for offspring. It can be seen as a, as a singular, one group of offspring, or it can be seen as plural. There are many people that make up that group of offspring. Paul is being very clear here. Listen, you're not reading this properly if you think that God is saying 
you're going to get this blessing and it's going to go to all your offsprings. The people of God are going to be a unified people. It's going to go to the one offspring of God. And who does he identify as that true heir, that one offspring of God? He calls that man Jesus Christ. So in Jesus Christ are all the promises of an inheritance that God gave to Abraham. Now if we're going to think about Israel purely in genetic terms, that would mean that legally only the progeny, the children of Jesus Christ, would be eligible to receive the blessings that are, are through Jesus Christ. But what's wrong with that? What's, what's problematic with that? Jesus didn't have any kids, right? Jesus never got married. He didn't have any offspring of his own. So how are these promises kept if Jesus doesn't have a bloodline in the physical sense? Paul is revealing to us that the bloodline is deeper than DNA. It is more significant than blood. Many of you know that my wife and I have had the blessing the last six months of bringing into our home a little baby girl. Her name is Rosie. And uh, she was born into a family that had some struggles and some trials. And we received her into our home through the county foster care system. We did that knowing full well that there are risks involved with that. When you take a child into your home, uh, there is no guarantee that child will stay with you. There's no guarantee that you'll get to have that child for X amount of months or years or for life. We have always had a heart for adoption, and we were hoping that this might be the way that God would use our family to bless a child that otherwise did not have a place to go. And so when Rosie came to us, we were overjoyed. And as the months have gone by, and many of you have followed that story, uh, her parents have not put the effort into getting their lives back in order, so it's become more and more hopeful that we would be able to adopt Rosie, which we're ecstatic about. We just received a call uh, a week ago Thursday that there was a family member who showed up and wanted to adopt Rosie. We found this, uh, this person was found rather through the a social worker who's a fabulous social worker. She's doing a great job with our case. She's the little sister of Rosie's mom. And uh, this young uh, sister saw the hardship that was caused by her sister's drug abuse and use. And she had vowed to her mother shortly before her mother passed away that if Rosie's mom ever had another child, that she would do whatever it took to make sure that child didn't go into the foster system and didn't get forgotten. Um, Rosie has an 18-year-old half-brother who went through a terrible trial and ordeal and was bounced from home to home in the foster care system. And she witnessed that, and it broke her heart. So when she learned about Rosie, she said, yes, I will adopt Rosie. And she has precedence over our family. Because she is blood-related to Rosie, they would, they would place the baby first with this, uh, this relative. So as you can imagine, my heart's been breaking, and my wife has, has been mourning over the possibility that this little girl that we have grown so attached to may be taken away from us. And we have prayed diligently and clung to the Lord because we know that even through hardship like this, He can provide everything that we need. And God is so gracious, church. Within eight days, our social worker called us and said, listen, this, this woman who wants to adopt Rosie is open to having a phone conversation with you. Would you be willing to call her? And we said, of course. She gave us the number. My wife called to talk to this woman who's named Victoria. And Victoria said, listen, this is, this is where I'm at. I'm 26, and uh, my life is not totally in order right now. Um, I'm not financially very secure. I still have schooling to do. 
but I'll do whatever it takes to give Rosie a home. And then she began to cry. And she said, but I don't think I have what it takes to give Rosie the home that she needs. Would you and your husband adopt Rosie? And of course, my wife in tears said, absolutely, we would love to adopt Rosie. And this isn't a guarantee that we will get her, but this is the hand of God working in a situation to remove another roadblock from this little girl becoming a part of our family forever. I share this story with you to tell you this. I have not loved Rosie like a daughter. I have loved Rosie this time that she's been with us as my daughter. She doesn't carry any of my blood in her veins, but her heart belongs to us. We love her like she is ours, and she is true family to us. And that is how God makes someone who believes in Christ a part of his true family. The biblical concept of adoption is not, we're going to bring you along and you'll be like a daughter or son, but a little bit different. In scriptural terms, when you adopt someone in your family, they become yours and you are theirs. And so Paul is painting this picture, this beautiful picture here, of a people group that God has won to himself through the work of Christ. And it's fulfilling the true promises of God to Abraham that he would have relatives, offspring, a bloodline that will be his forever. And we, through faith church, are now a part of that bloodline. In Romans chapter 11, when it says that we are like wild branches that are grafted into the tree and the root of Israel, that means we are a part of these promises now. We belong to God, and those promises are blessing us. When he preached the gospel to Abraham and said, you will be a blessing to many nations, we're that blessing. Most of us here in this room are probably not connected in any way, in a genetic sense, to Israel. But we are a part of Israel by faith, and we are the spiritual people of God alongside of genetic Israel. What a wonderful, wonderful reality that God has wrought for us. Philip Ryken says, A last will and a testament is a legal arrangement in which one party bestows his or her estate on someone else. It is a grant rather than a bargain. So God has said, have faith in me and I will give you the things that you need. You are incapable of saving yourself, so I will be your redeemer. I will rescue you. Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offspring, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is in Christ. And so church, we are that one offspring with Israel. There are not two different loved peoples of God. There is one beloved people of God who belong to Him and to Him alone. And how much glory does this give to God, the way that He has chosen to save us? I love how um, author John Stott writes and he says, the promise sets forth a religion of God. God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative. But the law sets forth a religion of man, man's duty, man's work, man's responsibility. The promise, standing for the grace of God, had only to be believed. But the law, standing for the works of men, had to be obeyed. And it had to be obeyed perfectly, which none of us can accomplish. And so the law demands, do this. But the grace of God 
the promise of God grants, receive this. What a gift we have in Jesus Christ. The Mosaic Covenant is the wrong covenant to look at if you want to see how God redeems. The Mosaic Covenant plays a very important part in God's history with man. It reveals to us our weakness. It proves to us that we are indeed like that team of kids that were stuck in the cave, that had no way out. We have no power to redeem ourselves. But through Christ, the promise of redemption has come and has been fulfilled in Him. All we have to do is allow the Lord to receive us as His own children. We've just got to accept the love that He wants to give to us. Embrace the promise. Enter the covenant and enjoy the inheritance of God.